Chapter Sixteen of Marjorie Dean, High School Freshman by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Sixteen The People of the Little Grey House. Intent upon their music, neither the singer nor the two men were immediately aware of the presence of another person in the room. Oh, that we two were lying under the churchyard sod, sang Constance, voicing the pent-up longing of Kingsley's tenderly regretful words and Nevin's wistful setting, while the violin sang a subdued, pensive obligato. Marjorie stood very still, her gaze fastened upon Constance. The quaint little boy stared at Marjorie with an equally intent interest. Thus, as Constance began the last line, the earnest, compelling regard of the brown eyes caused her own to be turned toward Marjorie. Oh, she ejaculated in faltering surprise. Where, where did you come from? What made you come here? There was mingled amazement, consternation, and embarrassment in the question. The white-haired pianist swung round on his stool, and the old man with the violin raised his head and regarded the unexpected visitor out of two mildly inquiring blue eyes. "'I'm sorry,' began Marjorie, her cheeks hot with the shame of being unwelcome. I suppose I ought not to have come, but... Constance sprang to her side and, catching her hands, said contritely, Forgive me, dear, and please don't feel hurt. I... you see, I never invite anyone here because... well, just because we are so poor. I thought you wouldn't care to come, and so... I've always wanted to come interrupted Marjorie eagerly. I don't think you are poor. I think you are rich to have this wonderful music. I never dreamed you could sing, Constance. What made you keep it a secret? No one ever liked me well enough to care to know it until you came, returned Constance simply. I meant to tell you, but I kept on putting it off. While the conversation went on between the two girls, the one old man was going over a pile of ragged-edged music on the piano, while the other was industriously engaged with a troublesome E-string. "'Father, Uncle John,' called Constance gently, "'come here. I want you to meet my friend Marjorie Dean.' Both musicians left their self-appointed tasks and came forward. Marjorie gave her soft little hand to each in turn, and they bowed over it with almost old-style courtesy. She looked curiously at Constance's father. His daughter did not in any way resemble him. His was the face of a dreamer, rather thin, with clean-cut features and dark eyes that seemed to see past one and into another world of his own creation. In spite of his white hair, he was not old. Not more than forty-five, or perhaps fifty, Marjorie decided. 
The other man was much older, sixty at least. He was very thin, and his gentle face wore a pathetically vacant expression that brought back to Marjorie the rush of bitter words Constance had poured forth on the day when she had declined to be friends. We take care of an old man who people say is crazy, and folks call us bohemians and gypsies and even vagabonds. I came here to see if Constance could go to the theatre with us tonight, explained Marjorie rather shyly. No, thank you. I won't sit down. I promised Mother I'd hurry home. It is very kind in you to ask my daughter to share your pleasure, said Constance's father, his sombre face lighting with the smile that reminded Marjorie of the sun suddenly bursting from behind a cloud. I should like to have her go. Have her go, repeated the thin old man, bowing and beaming. Is there a band at the theatre? piped a small, solemn voice. Marjorie smiled down into the earnest, upraised face of the little boy. Oh, yes, there is a big, big band at the theatre. Then take me too, returned the child calmly. No, no, reproved Constance gently. Charlie can't go tonight. A grieved look crept into the big black eyes. Without further words, the quaint little boy limped over to the old man, whom Constance had addressed as Uncle John, and hid behind him. Forgetting formality, tender-hearted Marjorie sprang after him. She knelt beside him and gathered him into her arms. He made no resistance, merely regarded her with a wistful curiosity. "'Listen, dear little man,' she said. "'You and Constance and I will go to the place where the big band plays some Saturday afternoon, "'and we'll sit on the front seat where you can see every single thing they do. "'Won't that be nice?' "'The boy nodded and slipped his tiny hand into hers. "'I'm going to play in the band when I grow up,' he confided. "'Connie can go tonight.' "'if she promises to tell me all about it afterward.' "'You dear little soul,' bubbled Marjorie, "'stroking his thick hair that fell carelessly over his forehead "'and almost into his bright eyes. "'I'll tell you all about everything, Charlie,' promised Constance. "'That means you will go,' cried Marjorie, "'joyfully rising from the floor, the child's hand still in hers. Yes, I will, returned Constance hesitatingly. Only, I haven't anything pretty to wear. Pretty to wear, repeated Uncle John faithfully. Never mind that, reassured Marjorie. Just wear a fresh white blouse with your blue suit. I'm sure that will look nice. Will look nice agreed Uncle John so promptly that Marjorie started slightly. Then, noting that Constance seemed embarrassed, she nodded genially at the old man, who smiled back like a pleased child. 
Remembering her mother's injunction, Marjorie took hasty leave of the Stevens family and set off for home at a brisk pace. Her thoughts were as active as her feet. She had seen enough in the last fifteen minutes to furnish ample food for reflection, and she now believed she understood her friend's strange reserve, which at times rose like a wall between them. What strange and yet what utterly delightful people the Stevens were. They really did remind one a little of gypsies. And what a queer room she had been ushered into by the odd little boy named Charlie. She smiled to herself as she contrasted her mother's home-like yet orderly living room with the room she had just left, which evidently did duty as a hall, living room, music room and also a playroom for little Charlie. There were hats and coats and musical instruments, pile upon pile of well-thumbed music and numerous dilapidated playthings that bore the marks of too ardent treasuring, all scattered about in reckless confusion. No wonder Constance had fought shy of acquaintanceships, which were sure to ripen into schoolgirl visits. Poor Constance! How dreadful it must be to have to keep house, cook the meals, and try to go to school. The Stevenses seemed to be very poor in everything except music. She wondered how they lived. Perhaps the two men played in orchestras. Still, she had never heard anything about them in school, where news circulated so quickly. "'I'm going to ask Constance to tell me about it,' she decided as she skipped up the front steps. "'Perhaps I can help her in some way.' Constance rang the Deans's bell at exactly half-past seven o'clock. Her blue eyes were sparkling with joyous light and her usually grave mouth broke into little curves of happiness. It was to be a red-letter night for her. The play was a clean, wholesome drama of American home life in which the leading part was taken by a young girl who appeared to be scarcely older than Marjorie and Constance. The latter sat like one entranced during the first act and Marjorie spoke to her twice before she heard. "'Constance,' she breathed, "'won't you please tell me all about it?' "'About what?' counter-questioned the other girl, reddening. "'About your father, and your wonderful voice, and, oh, all there is to tell.' "'Marjorie,' the merry girl's tones were strained and wistful. Do you really think it is wonderful? You will be a great singer some day, returned Marjorie simply. Oh, do you believe that? Constance clasped her hands in ecstasy. I wish to be. I hope to be. If I could only go away to New York City and study. Before we came here we lived in Buffalo. Father played in an orchestra there. He had a friend who taught singing, and I studied with him for a year. Then he died suddenly of pneumonia, and right after that father fell on an icy pavement and broke his leg. By the time it was well again, another man had his place in the orchestra. 
He had a few pupils, and long before his leg was well, he used to sit in a big chair and teach them. The money that they paid him for lessons was all we had to live on. The rising of the curtain on the second act cut short the narrative with, I'll tell you the rest later. Constance turned eager eyes toward the stage. Isn't it a beautiful play? She sighed when the act ended. Lovely, agreed Marjorie. Now tell me the rest. Oh, there isn't much more to tell. It was the last of March when father got hurt but it was the middle of May before he was quite well again. Then summer came and most of his pupils went away and we grew poorer and poorer. Just when we were the poorest, the editor of a new musical magazine wrote him and asked him to write some articles. A friend of father's in New York told the editor about father and gave him our address. We decided to move to a smaller city where we could live more cheaply and some of the musicians that father knew gave him a benefit concert. The money from that helped us to move to Sanford, and father has been writing articles off and on for the magazine ever since then. It's better for all of us to be here. Uncle John isn't quite like other people. When he was a young man he studied to be a virtuoso of the violin. He overworked and had brain fever just before he was to give his final recital. After he got well he never played the same again. He had spent all the money his father left him on his musical education, so he had to find work wherever he could. He played the violin in different orchestras, but he was so absent-minded that he couldn't be trusted. Sometimes he would go on playing after all the rest of the orchestra had finished and then he began to repeat things after people. When father first met him, they were playing in the same theatre orchestra. One night a great tragedian was playing Hamlet, and poor Uncle John grew so interested that he said things after him as loud as he could. The actor was dreadfully angry, and so was the leader of the orchestra. He made the poor old man leave the theatre, after that he played in other orchestras a little, but he couldn't be depended upon, so no one wanted to hire him. Father did all he could to help him, but he grew queerer and queerer. Then he disappeared, and Father didn't see him for a long while. One cold winter night he found him wandering about the streets, so he brought him to his room, and he has been with Father ever since. That was years ago before father was married. He isn't really my uncle. I just call him that. The musicians used to call him Crazy Johnny. His name is John Rowland. Although Constance had averred that there wasn't much to tell, the third act interrupted her recital, and it was during the interval before the beginning of the last act that Marjorie heard the story of the fourth member of the Stevenses household. Little Lame Charlie Charlie has been with us a little over four years, returned Constance in answer to Marjorie's interested questions. He is seven years old, but you would hardly believe it. His mother died when he was a tiny baby, and his father was a dreadful drunkard. He was a musician too, a clarionet player. 
He let Charlie fall downstairs when he was only two years old and hurt his hip. That's why he's lame. His father used to go away and be gone for days and leave the poor baby with his neighbours. Father found out about it and took Charlie away from him, and we've had him with us ever since. It was splendid in your father to be so good to the poor old man and Charlie, said Marjorie warmly. Father is the best man in the world, returned Constance with fond pride. He is such a wonderful musician too. He can play on the violin as well as the piano, and he teaches both. If only he could get plenty of work here in Sanford. He has a few pupils, and with the articles he writes we manage to live, but the magazine is a small one and does not pay much for them. He has tried ever so many times to get into the theatre orchestra, but there seems to be no chance for him. I think we'll go somewhere else to live before long, perhaps to a big city again. I'd love to stay here and go through high school with you, but I'm afraid I can't. I'm almost eighteen, and I ought to work. Oh, you mustn't think of leaving Sanford, exclaimed Marjorie in sudden dismay. What would I do without you? Perhaps things will be brighter after a while. I'm sure they will. Why couldn't your father... But the last act was on, and she did not finish what had promised to be a suggestion. Nevertheless, a plan had taken shape in her busy mind, which she determined to discuss with her father and mother. As if to further her design, they found Mr. Stevens waiting outside the theatre for his daughter, and Marjorie lost no time in presenting him to her father and mother. He greeted the deans gravely, thanking them for their kindness to his daughter, with a fine courtesy that made a marked impression on them and after he had gone his way, a happy, smiling Constance beside him, Marjorie slipped her arms in those of her father and mother, and walking between them, told Constance's story all over again. I think it is positively noble in Mr. Stevens to take care of that old man and little Charlie when they have no claim upon him, she finished. He has a remarkably fine, sensitive face said Mrs. Dean. I suppose like nearly all persons of great musical gifts, he lacks the commercial ability to manage his affairs successfully. Don't you believe that if the people of Sanford only knew how beautifully Mr. Stevens and the other man played together, they might hire them for afternoon teas and little parties and such things? asked Marjorie, with an earnestness that made her father say teasingly, are you going to enlist in his cause as his business manager? You mustn't tease me, General, she reproved. I'm in dead earnest. I was just thinking tonight that Mr. Stevens ought to have an orchestra of his own. You know Mother promised me a party on my birthday, and that's not until January 10th. Why can't I have it the night before Thanksgiving? That will be next Wednesday. Mr. Stevens and Mr. Rowland can play for us to dance. A violin and piano will be plenty of music. If everyone likes my orchestra, then someone will be sure to want to hire it for some of the holiday parties. 
Don't you think that is a nice plan? Very, laughed her father. I see you have an eye to business, Lieutenant. You can have your party next week if you like, dear, agreed Mrs. Dean, who made it a point always to encourage her daughter's generous impulses. Then I'll send my invitations tomorrow, exulted Marjorie. Hurrah for the Stevens Orchestra! Long may it wave! She gave a joyous skip that caused her father to exclaim, Steady! and her mother to protest against further jolting. Beg your pardon, both of you, apologised the frisky lieutenant, giving the arms to which she clung an affectionate squeeze. But I simply had to rejoice a little. Won't Constance be glad? I could never care quite so much for Constance as I do for Mary, but I like her next best. She's a dear, and we're going to be friends as long as we live. But clouds have an uncomfortable habit of darkening the clearest skies, and even sworn friendships are not always time-proof. End of chapter 16 Recording by Ashley Jane